I'm going to share, God's been speaking to me about this topic for probably a month, um, and I was going to preach, well actually more than a month, because I was going to preach it at our last combined, and um, preaching didn't happen last time, because we were <laughs> on the floor, uh, so yeah, so we <laughs> didn't preach, we did something else, um, and it was great, but I know that this message is important, so I wanted to still bring it, and um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to be important, so we know that we want revival, right? Like, if you're in our church, that's probably something you know about and something you care about. Okay. Um, and revival always leads to reformation, right? It leads to reshaping culture. But whenever there's going to be a reformation, God always calls people back to himself, right? He calls the church and he calls society back to himself through repentance and obedience, right? Repentance and obedience. Repentance, right? Repentance is about... Um, laying down what I think, what I believe for what God thinks and what God believes for what God does but a reformation is what happens when revival does its job in society because sometimes we, we want revival which means like, oh all of a sudden there's like powerful things happening and people are getting touched by God but that actually doesn't do the fruit of that should be that society changes right? the fruit of that is that society gets better things change, society actually turns their hearts and their actions and the way that society is shaped and culturally transformed is reflective of kingdom values and kingdom culture. That's what shows that revival did its work, <laughs> right? That's why God brings revival, so that we can reshape and reform. And so we're in a beginning of that kind of season. Well, not the beginning, I mean the beginning in God's terms, right? It's like decades, probably. Uh, he's been doing it for a while, probably, but it's still the beginning because it hasn't like really happened yet, right? But we're in it. We're in it. But God is calling those of us who are here, as well as the rest of the church, you know, corporately, everybody in the church, to, to really lean in and not to, to love righteousness and hate sin because it's the right thing to do in our religion, but to do that because of our connection to his heart. God is wanting humility from us. Um, and Jesus wants us to see him as he is, his image defined by him, defined by the Father, and not defined by us. So pride can tell us that we have an opinion about what Jesus looks like. Does that make sense? You know, sometimes in society, we want to say, well, my Jesus is kind of like this. My truth is kind of like this. But actually, we don't decide Jesus, and we don't decide what's true. We look to the Father to decide the image of Christ and what the truth is. And so repentance, again, it's that, that changing our mind, allowing anything that's in us to be transformed to what's in him. Right, Because we're not deciding, we're deferring to him. We want him to renew our mind. Obedience is an interesting thing, right? We've talked about that sometimes. It's, it's Jesus becoming our Lord. That means our leader. That means the one that we're looking to. And if we don't give him the lordship in our life, we will really struggle with obedience to the Bible and his voice. Right, So it's that surrender through repentance that, and humility that we actually surrender the lordship, the leadership of our life to Jesus. Because we want to learn. We want him to be our teacher. We want to look to the Bible and look to his spirit to teach us and show us how to live. And we're compelled to obey. We're compelled to obey. And not because we have to obey. Right? It, we're compelled to obey because of love. Right? When you get married, you're compelled to not you know, have relationships with a bunch of other people. Why? Because you're not supposed to? Well, if that's your only reason, there's other things going on. But if you're in a good, let's, let's assume, 
that you're in a healthy marriage that's great and that's full of real love. Well, then you're compelled to not be in a bunch of other relationships out of love, not out of you have to. And so that's how we come to God, because we want to, not because we have to. I'm just going to grab my Bible really quick because I'll need it. It's not good. I'll need that. Get that Bible. Okay, I got that Bible. I get the Bible. Um, so in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are given. Does anyone remember that? So God, he gives the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Actually, let, let's look at it real quick. Who know, does anybody know him by heart for extra Bible points? Does anybody want to shout out? Okay, that's one. Yep. Untainted love. That's a different commandment. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> I love it that you're giving it a go, though. I love it that TJ's, like, speaking up. Okay. No murder. Don't covet. Don't murder. Uh, Things like this. Don't steal. Don't steal. Don't do that. Yep. No idols. Yep. Okay. All right. So let me read a couple. Let me read a couple. Okay. One through five. It says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So remember that one. Don't have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, or beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the sins for the sins, or sorry, punishing the sin, you can't do that, punishing the children for the sins of the parents of the third and the fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, God says a couple commandments in there, right? Let's remember a few things he said. He said, don't have any other gods, before me, don't make for yourselves an image or a form of anything, he said, anything in heaven, above, on the earth, or in the waters. Don't bow down to them and worship them, for I, your God, am a jealous God. Okay, so they're like, all right, great. So Israel, then God, you know, he, get, he gives them all these commandments. He's speaking to them, you know, with this like voice of thunder, and Israel gets afraid. They're like, actually, this is really intense. God's voice is really loud. He's kind of scary. <laughs> How about, Moses, you go talk to God. We will hang back here. You just let us know what he says. We, want, we don't want to die, basically, is what they said. If he speaks to us, we will die, was what they said. So they're afraid. And though, so in terms of the covenant, God, he goes on, he continues with the covenant, right? Finishes the Ten Commandments, goes on with all these terms. Do this, do this. Set this up. Don't murder, don't covet, right? He goes on. Then Israel responds in 24.3. It says all the people in one voice. So this is in response to all the things that God asked them to do. It says all the people in one voice said, all the things the Lord has commanded, we will do. So here we are. Play back the tape. All the things the Lord commanded, we will do. All right. All right. So in Exodus 25, 1 through 9, God calls Israel to give a first fruits offering from their hearts. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it later. So he calls them to give a first fruits offering. Who knows what a first fruit is? It's the first thing. It's the first fruits. Okay. It's the first thing. Okay. So God calls Israel to give a first fruits offering. And this is the first time they're asked to offer God anything. Now think about this. Israel's in the desert. They just got taken out of slavery. And God's asking them, give me an offering from the first of what you have. Where did they get what they have? From God. But technically, where did they get everything they had? Remember the story? From the Egyptians. So God, when they're coming out of Egypt, God tells Israel, plunder them, essentially. They're going to give you, and not, you're not even going to have to take it, they're going to give you all of their wealth as you exit Egypt. And so now Israel, they're like, they're in the desert, they have like all of this wealth, right? Gold, jewels, Egyptian things, 
probably hieroglyphics, who knows? Like a lot of things that Egypt had, right? Um, probably some little head dresses and things. But they've got a bunch of things that God himself said, hey, you don't have to fight for this stuff. I'm going to actually like hand over all the wealth of the Egyptians as you head into the desert. And why did God call Egypt into the desert? Or sorry, why did he call the Israelites into the desert? What was the reason? Remember? Moses goes to Pharaoh and said, let my people go so that they can what? Worship me. Okay. So then God is asking them, bring a first fruits offering. Okay. This is the first time they're ever asked to offer something to God. So God gave them something so that they would have something to offer. Right? Because you can't, you can't ask somebody for something when they have nothing. So he's like, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And then I'm going to ask you to bring a first fruit offering to me of all this stuff I gave you. Okay. So, and God asks specifically for all whose hearts prompt them to give. So even then, you know, we talk in Old Covenant, New Covenant about giving. Even then, it actually wasn't about obey the law and give me the first of everything I gave to you. He said everyone whose hearts prompt them. In other words, like out of love for me, I'm asking you to bring back the first of what I gave you. And even in the beginning, God didn't law them to give. They only had anything to give in the first place because God gave it to them. Now look at this. Okay, so Moses goes up to speak with God. He's on the mountain. How long? Someone was saying it. 40 days. 40 days. So then less than 40 days later. Let's check out what happens. Less than 40 days later. So remember, remember what they say? All these things you have commanded. We will do it. We'll see. So Exodus 32, 1 through 6. Let's check it out. Let's check out what happened. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. There's a lot. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to who? The calf? No, to the Lord is what he calls it. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, whatever that means. I imagine sin, revelry. It's like sin, right? You think of like the drunken parties from the old days. I don't know. Not my old days. I never lived like that. But, you know, anyway, moving on. Um, So think about this. There's a lot of things that I don't want us to miss. Why did God bring the Israelites, whatever their names are, why did he bring them out of Egypt? To worship, to worship him. What was the first thing he requested of them? A first fruits offering, right? But he, he said specifically, see, you remembered, I like that. I said, remember, you remembered. He said, do not make an idol. Don't call an idol. Don't cast an idol of me. Don't cast an idol of anything, right? Don't do that. So then, what to worship him? And what stole the first fruit? of their worship this idol that they created and what did they call it savior they called it savior so in other words think about this they they make this calf right 
out of the first fruit offering that was meant to belong to God, they make an idol, something else out of that. They make it, and then they tell all of Israel, look, this is God. This, and not like this is an idol, its name is X. They call it their savior, the one who brought them out of Egypt. Is it the one who brought them out of Egypt? No, No, of course not. But that's actually what they call it. And they didn't just say God, they said this is your savior, specifically. Obviously, when we understand, you know, the picture of Egypt and sin and death and God rescuing Egypt out of the hand or Israel out of the hands of the enemy, as that relates now, salvation, God rescues us from sin and death and brings us into a place. But he wants us to recognize our savior. This is a picture, right, in the old covenant. People couldn't even get out of the gate without breaking half the commandments. Like, like already, Moses hasn't even come down with like the proper commandments, like on the stone. And they're already, like, engaging in revelry, <laughs> worshiping some other god. Like, when just five minutes ago, God's like, don't do that. They're like, okay, we will do that. <laughs> just kidding. Unless you take more than 30 days to come down from the mountain, then we'll do whatever we want. <laughs> so this is really interesting, too, right? So a calf. Why did they choose a calf? Has anybody ever wondered that? Why a calf? Why did they choose a calf? Hmm? Yes, but... But not, that's not why they chose it. But the, yes, actually, that does have something to do with ultimately what the calf ends up meaning. But why did Israel, or where did Israel just get delivered from? Egypt. Egypt. Right? So I thought about it. I'm like, God told me, actually, this is really funny. I was in the shower, right? God goes, look up what the calf is. I was like, was that God? You know? And then, so I get out of the shower and my phone is, you know, because like you never go anywhere without your phone being one foot away. So I get out of the shower and I was like, calf, what's the calf? And so I'm like writing down a note so I don't forget. So I look at the calf. In Egypt, Egypt is a picture of sin, darkness, the world, right? Like any time in the Bible you're looking at Egypt, it's this picture of darkness. It's a picture of what God saves us from. It's a picture of the kingdom of the, dark, of, of the enemy. In Egyptian myth, uh, mythology, the god Ra, right, which is like the ultimate god, he becomes unhappy with the sins of humanity. So he unleashes his child, the cow god who becomes known as Hathor to judge humanity for their sin. Later, though, it becomes recognized as a symbol for birth and rebirth. How crazy is that? Sound familiar? Interesting, though. Hathor was like a primary god in Egypt, and no doubt the Israelites would have been familiar. Similar story, right? Sounds kind of similar to some things. So not only did they call this calf savior, but they cast something that represented the exact opposite of the image of salvation that God was actually going to provide, which was his true image. This is the exact opposite. This calf, this kind of God, actually represented a judgmental God that came out to basically like terrorize and judge society and kill everybody. That's essentially what Hathor was. He came out and killed everybody. And then apparently God, Ra became like, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. You'll read it if you care. But the point is, that it's completely the opposite of the image of the true savior, of the image of salvation. They say, look at this, you're God who brought you out of Egypt. No, it wasn't. They just made something familiar to their bondage and they just changed the name of it. There's an interesting um, story in, in Jeroboam. I like you got that later. Not everybody got it, but, but TJ got it. <laughs> I like it when you sit in the front. It means a lot to me. You're, you're very encouraging. In First Kings, We come into a season of Israel, right? So they're out of the desert. They're in the promised land. 
Um, they've gone through the, the judges already, and now they've got a king, right? They ask for a king. He sends them Saul. Saul, after Saul comes David. Now, David was a great king. Every, well, not everybody loved him. I know Uriah didn't love him, but anyway. Uh, most people loved him. God called him a king after his own heart. And then after that, he has a son, Solomon, right? The nation goes to Solomon. Solomon's wise, for the most part, until he starts marrying like 800 wives, and then it goes like super downhill. But prior to that, he's wise. And um, <laughs> in 1 Kings 11, um, 11.26 through 12.24, I'm just going to summarize this uh, this turn of events because it is kind of long to read, but I'm just going to tell you what happens. So Solomon is kind of not, this is the time when Solomon has entered into his period of kind of like disobedience and he's become rebellious toward God. And so God basically says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to replace Solomon. I'm going to replace him in the kingdom. And so there's a guy named Jeroboam and Jeroboam is, and this is prior, by the way, to the kingdom splitting, right? If anybody knows the history of Israel became Judah and Israel became two nations. This is when that happened. And so what happens is Jeroboam's in the army, one of the commanders, great guy, everybody loves him. So God sends a prophet to Jeroboam. And he says, essentially, to sum it, um, you know, Solomon has been disobedient to me because of his, you know, lack of being faithful. I'm going to rip the kingdom from him. But because of David, I'm going to leave one tribe in Judah. So that's where Jerusalem was. I'm going to leave one tribe in Judah. So the tribe of Judah will be left in Jerusalem. But all of the other ten tribes, and if there's one missing, it's because Benjamin already has been, like, decided that it's not a tribe anymore. Another thing. But anyway, so ten tribes are going to become the nation of Israel. He said, and I'm going to give you these ten tribes. And if, right here comes the big if, that's always there, if you obey me, if you're faithful to me, if you worship me, if you lead the people well, I'll actually establish your house as the house of Israel. And all the promises I made to David, I'll give to you. Right? So Jeroboam's thinking, this is pretty great. Right? Like, what a promise. So then, of course, you know, then he becomes an exile because he has to run for his life and whatever. So he goes to another place, waits for Solomon to die. Solomon dies. Rehoboam becomes the king, which is Solomon's son. Everybody is a bomb, apparently. This is a big popular name. It's like David Matthew of the day, I guess. But Rehoboam becomes the king when Solomon dies because he's the heir. Now, Rehoboam has two choices in the way that he's going to lead the kingdom. The elders come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, you should lead in grace and lead in love. You know, make the people love you. Like do, you know, lighten their load, make life great for them, la la la. And so he says, okay, thanks for, for that. And then it says the young people who grew up with him came to him and said, no, don't do that. Smash the people, make it harder, make their load worse. Like make it, make it so bad for them that they like honor you and fear you and all that kind of stuff. And so, of course, he decides to go with the young people's opinion. So he goes to the people and he says, you know, if you thought my father was evil, well, then wait till you see me. I'm going to smash you, basically. And the people are like, no. And so 10 of the tribes, just as God said, 10 tribes leave the kingdom and they go off and become what's Israel. So now the kingdom is divided, Israel and Judah. Jeroboam comes back and he's now in charge of Judah. Does that make sense? Or sorry, of Israel. And now Rehoboam has one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and kind of Benjamin. Um, and so that's when the, temp, the, the country split. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I did like two chapters in just like a quick little story. It's, it's easier than reading it all, trust me. Um, 
And then so we've got sacrifices, right? Sacrifices in the Old Covenant was how you would cover your sin before God. You know, so, you know, you sin, you bring a sacrifice, God's pleased with you for 10 minutes until you sin again. You know, and that was kind of like the way the Old Covenant worked, just sacrifices. And there was the, the tabernacle in the desert, right, where God, his presence would always be with Israel. And so from the tabernacle, when they actually had a kingdom, then the Ark of the Covenant, which was the thing that contained God's presence, was moved into the temple, which is at Jerusalem, right? So the nation of Judah, which is the member of the one tribe, under Rehoboam, that's where the temple is. The temple is in Jerusalem. Now, according to the law and the practice of Israel, they needed to sacrifice at the temple. They needed to go to the presence of God. They needed to basically follow the instructions, God is telling him, hey, you have to be obedient to me still. You need to lead the people well, and I'll establish you and your kingdom. So where was God's presence? Say Jerusalem. Everybody! Say Jerusalem! Where did the sacrifices need to happen? At the temple in Jerusalem. So 1 Kings 12, 26 says this. Jeroboam thought to himself, how, good, how, how often does that start well? Like He thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. He means Rehoboam. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and they'll return to King Rehoboam. Is that what God told him? No. No, that's just what he thought to himself. Careful. <laughs> what we think to ourselves when God's already told us something. Anyway, after, see- <laughs> after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. There it is again. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Familiar? One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the law, that's like, no, no, don't do that. God told him, don't do that. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed high priests at the high places. And on the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites, and they went up the altar to make offerings. So, does it sound like he obeyed God, did what he commanded, and led the people? No. No, that's, that's not what he did. That's not what he did. He's kind of off to a terrible start. Um, so instead of trusting God, he builds these two calves, and then a prophet gets sent to Jeroboam and says, basically, God is telling you, hey, like, you blew it. I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. And in 400 years, there's one coming called Josiah. So who remembers King Josiah that then Jeremiah the prophet goes to King to King Josiah and he becomes king when he's eight years old. The Israel has been without the law for 400 years, right? And then Josiah becomes king, tears down the idols, the high places. Because who knows, whenever God is going to bring reformation, whenever God's going to bring revival, the idols come down first. You got to tear down the idols and you have to come back to the place of true worship. You have to come back to the place of knowing who the Savior is and what he actually looks like and what he doesn't look like. So then he says in 1 Kings 13, 1 through 3, Josiah is going to come though. And so all this stuff you're doing, that's 
it's not fine, but you're going to do it. That's okay. God's going to rip the kingdom away from you. But Josiah is going to come and he's going to bring the people back to God. And so it's interesting how he sets up these calves. He changes the priesthood, changes the location, changes the rituals, changes all these things. And it's interesting how he was still worshiping God in his own eyes. It wasn't long before he chose to lead Israel in full-blown idolatry. So first it starts with, hey, this is your savior. Then it's all the way to revelry. <laughs> then it's all the way to idols like Ashtoreth and Molech and all these other like foreign gods that were gods of the other nations that all of a sudden they're now worshiping. Because when we transform God into an image of our own choosing instead of seeing him as he's revealed himself and worshiping as he desires to be worshiped, it won't be long until we not only have like distorted and manipulated everything about worship, but it won't be long until we actually accept and participate in the worship of other gods altogether. Wow. So it doesn't stop there. Anytime we're disconnected from him, it will only take a short time before we worship anything, whatever else. But it always starts with a false version of our Savior. Mm. It always starts with a false picture of what Jesus really looks like and who he really is. Both times, the leader of the people, so Aaron the last time, Jeroboam this time, they say the same phrase, look Israel, this is your God, the one who brought you out of Israel, look, this is the God that saved you. Yet this image doesn't have any resemblance, and everything else is of course a downward spiral. Who loves pie? I love pie, and I especially love key lime pie, so everybody write that down, because when it's my birthday, I want to get like 30 key lime pies, I have to put in the freezer, because I love key lime pie, but anyway, you can order them from Florida, and I'll bring them, they'll ship them here, just just like a note, if you love me, just write it down, anyway, I'm re- I read I'm really going to get like 30 pies, my birthday is December 1st, anyway, um, but I love key lime pie, so when someone says, I'm going to make you a key lime pie, generally that makes me like really happy, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So um, that happened recently, and I hope they don't watch this, but that happened recently where somebody was like, I'm going to make you a key lime pie, and I'm thinking, wow, this is the best day of my life, you know? And so they're telling me what to get at the store for the ingredients, and I'm thinking, I know that doesn't go in key lime pie. But okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. They're saying this is like the best version of key lime pie I'll ever taste. I'm like hesitant at this point. You've told me to get a few things I know are not in key lime pie. So I get all these things that they asked me to get, they make it, and I mean, they're talking about it like all day, and I love her, right? I love her. They sh- she makes a lot of things well, but this wasn't it. And so she makes this, this dessert, um, and she puts a bunch of things in it, and she's like all day long. She's like talking it up like, wait till you taste it. Oh, my gosh, you're going to love it. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, I'm ready. I mean, I'm willing to be wrong. I saw the things that you put in there, and I know that those things don't go in key lime pie, but I'm willing to at least taste it. So then I tasted it, and it wasn't good, and it also didn't taste like key lime pie. I don't, it tasted like something else, like something with cream, it resembled a pie of some kind. Um, A pie of some kind, it tasted like, but um, it wasn't key lime pie, right? It's, It's not... And you're kind of like, did anybody else taste this? Like, have you ever tasted it? Or do you just, like, make it for people? But anyway, because I'm not going to go on in case she ever watches this. But it just wasn't, it wasn't that good, you know? And it also wasn't what it was supposed to be, right? So when somebody tells you, I'm going to make you key lime pie, like, I would expect, like, lime in it, for one, like, key limes. Um, You know, like, (laughs) meringue. Um, Some various ingredients that kind of, like, make it what it is. But isn't that interesting, though? Like, when somebody tells you something, they give you an expectation. Like, if you know what's already a part of that thing, 
and those things are not going into it, it should kind of like send a red flag. Maybe that's not the thing that they're saying it is. Does that make sense? So we are created in the image of God, right? And God actually, um, hang on one second, we're created in a God, an image of a God that works for us sometimes, right? So instead of do, like worshiping God as he is, we create a God that works for us. Does that make sense? Like it works for us. It's like, well, you know, I'm just, I, I like pineapple in my key lime pie. I'm just going to put it in there, see what it tastes like. I'm going to not do the lime this time because like I don't love lime. It's not my favorite. So I'm just going to leave it out and I'm going to add the pineapple, take out the lime, something else now. But anyway, you get the point. We can create something that works for us instead of the actual thing as it is. We have to sometimes melt the image that we've created and actually it has become idolatry to us, right? So the calf became idolatry, even though they were calling it savior and pretending to worship it. We can have a false image in the name of a God and we can even encourage other people to worship it. So let's stop pointing to calves and calling them Jesus. And how do we actually know what our Savior looks like? How do we know? Shout it out. Scripture, absolutely. The Bible. What else? Spending time with him. And that's what we talked about in the beginning, humility, repentance, and obedience. That's actually what tells us what our Savior actually looks like. And that's how we're not deceived by the calves walking around that everybody's pointing to and calling Jesus. They're not Jesus. You know, when Israel would complain about manna, does anybody remember that in the Bible? So God would give Israel manna all the time. So the manna is this picture, right? And, and yeah, every day, actually, all the time, as in every single day, they would have died without it. So because they don't have food in the middle of the desert. And so God's like, I'm going to provide manna for you. Does anyone know what the picture of manna is? What does picture resemble, or sorry, what does manna resemble in the Bible? Yeah? What's the greater prophetic picture? Jesus. Right? The greater picture of manna is the prophetic picture of Jesus. So manna means what is it in like the local language? Because when it appeared, it looks like a coriander seed and you grind it up and then you have to make like a little cake out of it. And then they would eat those and then they would stay alive like indefinitely for 40 years. They just stayed alive on these little cakes, right? From this thing that God provided. But every now and again, Israel would complain, right? You see it, they'll be like, give us something else. We're sick of this manna. Like give us some meat. Give us back to, take us back to Egypt where we had onions. That's what they say one time. I was like, what? <laughs> you, want, you literally are willing to trade slavery for onions? Like, you have not tasted much. Like, that is like really low, low standards. Um, but has anyone ever wondered why God seems so angry every time they ask for something else? Has any, I've wondered that. I've been like, dang, all they asked for was quail. Why are you going to kill them? He's like, because the time they asked for quail, he's like, that's it. I'm going down there. I'm going to smash him. Like, that's it. And Mo's like, don't do it. He's like, all right, I'm going to do it. Um, so, so here's the thing. In Numbers 21, 4 through 8, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the road to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke out against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Complainers. There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable manna, right? Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Listen to this. They bit the people and many of them died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned. <laughs> uh, okay, we get it. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that God will snake these ta- take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. 
Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and looked at the bronze snake. Anyone, sorry, anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at it and they lived. So the manna, right? It's this picture of Jesus. The manna is the picture of what God provides. We look at it, we say, huh, what is that? But we're called to take it. (laughs) Eat it or you'll die. (laughs) I'm not providing anything else. So anytime the people were like, we don't like this manna. Give us something else. We're so hungry for quail. God's like, ugh. You know, and then this time, they're asking about, what, what did they want this time? Then they're just complaining. There's no bread. There's just no water. We hate manna. And God's like, that's it, snakes. Ugh. Like, so snakes are out, right? Snakes are out. They're biting all the people. Okay. In John 6, it says, Jesus says, I am the manna that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will never be hungry again. I am what God is giving to provide life. Take it or leave it. That's not the Bible verse. I have that. I am what God is providing or giving to provide life, take it or leave it. And because of their lack of satisfaction in God's provision, but doesn't God get to decide what his salvation looks like? Doesn't he get to decide? But they complain all the time. Give us something else. Give us something else. In John 3, 14 through 15, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake, I will be lifted up. What does that mean? What does a snake have to do with Jesus? Well, the snake is that anybody who was bitten will look at the snake and they will live. Right. So what does a serpent sound familiar to? The devil. the devil, right? So think about this. Think about this. The people, they're saying, we hate this manna, yuck. I.e., we hate what you've provided. We don't want it. Give us something else. God's like, okay, fine experience the something else, right? Mm -hmm. The sin of humanity came through the serpent. Mm -hmm. So it's this picture. The serpent then, they get to experience the weight of sin. The serpent comes in and just gets to bite them all. (laughs) And they're getting bit. Some of them are dying. They're crying out, oh, this sucks. Like, take these snakes away. So God's like, okay, here's how I'm going to take the snakes away. Here's how I'm going to take away the pain of the sin. I'm going to make an image of a snake the sin, and I'm going to raise it up, and everybody who looks at it and recognizes it, right? Everybody who looks at it, they'll live, even if they've been bitten. So here's the the thing. What did Jesus become? Sin. Sin. Took on the wrath of God. When we look at him, he was raised up. When we look at him on the cross, and we see his unrecognizable face, and we see the image of sin and shame, we are transformed by looking at him into his resurrected image. And we receive life through the bread that God provided when we're grateful for God's provision. And we're not angry wanting something else. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. So it's this picture, look up at who became sin and that's the only way that you will live. It's the only way. In John 14, 6 through 9, it says, Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. The Father is perfectly reflected in the Son. God revealed himself in one image, Jesus. That's it. The fullness of Christ is the only image that we have to gaze on. If we don't want Jesus as provided and defined by the Father, there's no other sacrifice. There's no other thing that God can provide to bring us life. There's no other version except the version given. We don't get to alter his image. We look at the son as defined by the father. 
It's interesting. Um, we will reflect what we worship. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. We'll reflect what we worship. So oftentimes we wonder why we don't look like Jesus. What are we looking at? Are we looking at him or are we looking at something else and calling it him because it's something we've designed and it makes us feel a whole lot more comfortable to look at that? But hey, we're going to reflect that if we keep looking at it. But if we want to be changed, if we want to be saved, if we want to be removed from this like pain and of sin, then we need to look at him. Who, um, who's familiar with Revelation? I know not everybody reads it all the time because, you know, sometimes it can get a little confusing. Um, somebody raise their hand. I appreciate that. Um, he's like, I'm very familiar with Revelation. Um, so the church in Laodicea is one of the seven churches. In Revelation, um, John has this vision, right, on the Isle of Patmos. He's caught up, and he has this vision of Jesus. And Jesus gives him a revelation. It's rightly named. Um, and so Laodicea is one of the seven churches. And... In this, uh, you know, example, well, first of all, God also said to me, like, uh, right before I was writing this message, God said, just wondering, he's like, Laodicea. I was like, like, literally, this is like how this happened, like, like, Laodicea. And so I just, like, wrote it down on my notes. I came back to it. So I look at the church of Laodicea. So Laodicea is a really interesting place. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it before I read this, because it will make a whole lot more sense. Laodicea is really interesting. So it's the wealthiest city in the region, right? It is famous for this black, glossy wool. And, I mean, they would sell it all over the world. Like, it was very wealthy. Um, Everyone, this was, like, envious of this black wool. It was the center of medical innovation. So a lot of what became the medical practice actually started in Laodicea. Um, They would actually, they were famous for this uh, healing eye solve that they created and, like, sent all over the world through trade. Um, But, yeah. They actually, though, it was positioned in a very strong, a very strange place. So Laodicea was between two bodies of water that they kind of couldn't get close enough to, so they developed an irrigation system, a piping system. So there was Colossae, which was 10 miles south, and there was Heropolis, which was 7 miles north. From Colossae, they would actually pipe in cold water. And then from Heropolis, they would pipe in warm water, hot water, from the hot springs. And so now I want to read this because there's some things in it that you're going to miss if you don't understand who he's talking to, right? So Revelation 3, 14 through 22. I'm like, where is it? All the way in the back. Okay. <laughs> I was literally thumbing through like where Corinthians is. Like, what am I doing? I know the Bible. I know the Bible. Okay. So Revelation 3, 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, that means Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, 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 poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and put um, salve on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who's ever heard um, the, like, hot and cold, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, and you thought that's like, okay, go all in for Christ, like, be on fire. Like, who's ever thought that that's what that means? It doesn't mean that. Has anyone ever had, like, um, had a, a, like, somebody preach that? He was like, don't be lukewarm. God's going to spit you out of his mouth. That's kind of not exactly what he's talking about. So we're familiar now with a few things about Laodicea, right? So they're piping in hot water. The hot water they would use for medicine, right? They're, They're the center of medicine. So they would pipe in water from the hot springs. They would pipe in cold water from the cold water source. And by the time it got there, it would be what temperature do you think by the time it got? Lukewarm. What temperature do you think the hot water was by the time it got there? Lukewarm. So they're bringing in the cold water. They're bringing in the hot water. But by the time it arrives, it's useless. This is the picture that he's giving to them. Because you're useless, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, you're not good for cleansing. You're not good for healing. I'm going to spit you out. And so that's what God is saying to this church. Right? Because then he says, what does he say in, um, because you're neither. You're not doing anything I've asked you to do. Because you're neither, I'm going to spit you out. He calls them, he literally calls them useless. I can't use you to heal. I can't use you to refresh. The gold and the wealth, right? They're known for being wealthy. And he's saying, I advise you to buy gold from me, refined in the fire. And what does gold represent? Purity. It represents purity and humility to Christ. They're known for this black wool that goes all over the world. And what does he say? I advise you to get white clothes from me. Right? What does, what does white clothes represent in the Bible? Righteousness. The righteousness that comes from God, not from ourselves. He says, I want you to put on some of that eye salve. What does he say about their eyes? Um, yeah, put your salve on your own eyes, he says, so that you can see. In other words, you're known for sending this salve all over the world and helping people to see. I wish you would put some of that on <laughs> so that you could see me, right? You're spiritually blind is what he's telling them. So I, I really believe that God is calling us, you know, and, and a lot of people, I believe, in the world, in this season to stop calling the calf Jesus. We have a purpose of healing and refreshing as the church, as the body of Christ. And Jesus hasn't gone anywhere, right? He's saying, here I am. If you want to receive me, we can have communion, is what he's saying. So if you want to receive me, because he's standing there and knocking. If you open the door, believe it's going to look like him. It's not going to look like anything else. And in order to let him in, we have to receive him and nothing else. And so that's kind of what I really felt to share. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)